You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. To the projection booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Mr. Chris Dashu. I am here once again. Hello. Also back in the booth is Mr. Ken Stanley. Mike, I want to give back to the landscapes the vomits of experience I had while watching this film. Cinema Nova Month continues with a look at Glauber Rocha's Terra M. Trance, also known as Entranced Earth or Land of Anguish. It's the story of the mythical country of El Dorado, where the events seem to oddly parallel the political upheaval of Brazil from around 1960 to 1966. It was initially banned by the Brazilian government until enough public outcry allowed it to be shown domestically as well as in film festivals. We're going to be spoiling this movie as much as this movie can be spoiled. You have been warned. Chris, I'm very curious. What did you think of, should we just call it Land of Anguish? Does that sound good? Or Entranced Earth? Or Entranced Earth. What did you think of Entranced Earth, bud? I liked it. I mean, again, you know, it's a lot of thinly veiled, and in this film, it's about as thin as it's about as thin as paper. It's paper thin allegory and paper thin kind of accusation and kind of condemnation of things that were going on in the Brazilian government at the time. And I'm sure we'll talk about the fact that it's more or less still going on, obviously. But it's talking about a time and place. This feels a little bit more quote unquote topical than the last two films, but standing on its own. It's a little bit more narratively disjointed than the last two films, which was a little kind of odd for me to take in immediately. I wasn't expecting it to go in this disjointed narrative, but I think overall, I think it's 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 interesting. It's an interesting movie. I wouldn't go as far as say I liked it, but it's interesting and it has obviously like the last two something important to say. How about you, Ken? I'm not going to go as far as Chris in saying that I liked it. It's certainly worth talking about. It gets bogged down in polemics and in dialectics and rhetoric. And ultimately, I think it, it kind of like crumbles under its own weight. We're talking about a character who's a poet. There's stuff coming at you left and right, dialogue-wise. I just quoted the thing about vomits of experience. That's something in the film. It takes you a while to digest something like that. And then something else comes at you while you're trying to digest one piece of dialogue. It's not above anyone's head, I don't think. It's just that it's a heck of a lot of stuff shooting at you from all different angles. Certainly, even if I can't say that I like the movie, I find it a difficult film. Uh, there's certainly a hell of a lot to talk about because I think it does justice to the insanity of politics. I was pretty confused the first time I saw this. I had to watch it twice, and I definitely... Could understand it a little bit more the second time, especially that I knew that the majority of the film was a flashback because I did not get that at all the first time I watched it until the very end when we start to repeat what we saw at the beginning. And then it's like, oh, okay, this incident that happens on a highway pretty early in the movie is super important and sets us off into our main character, Paolo going into the desert and then he seems to have the rest of the film in the flashback and then we revisit the opening of the film and then we see a little bit more of what happened on that highway 
But man, oh man, I did not pick that up. I didn't get like the the harp going and the the wavy lines, the you know, of the the screen kind of breaking up and being like, this is a flashback. Now there is none of that hand holding. Rosha just does not hold your hand at all through this, and it's just like, okay, here you go, sink or swim. You're in the deep end now, and I can see why the French would just love this film because it did feel very avant-garde the way that the French New Wave was very avant-garde. But man, oh man, yeah, it was super talky, and you're right. It was just like one thing after another, after another, after another. And since this is a flashback of a dying man, we are just in that kind of dream logic and seeing a lot of things that maybe don't necessarily add up because they're happening in Paolo's mind. Let's just put it this way. Like you've already mentioned, Mike, I didn't realize it was a flashback until, oh, what, like the last minute of the movie? <laughs> like I was like, okay, so what we've been seeing up until this point has been things that have already happened. All right, got it. I mean, look, like you said, you know, Roka, like just, uh, look, I give him credit. I appreciate a filmmaker saying, this is my vision. No, no baby steps, no training wheels. You're coming for the ride. And that's it. And I appreciate that. But at the same time, if it's a English language film, that's one thing. But compounding the foreign language film aspect of it, that doesn't add to my ability to comprehend. It kind of detracts from it. You have to question anything that's subtitled as well. The print I have, some of the subtitling just seemed wrong linguistically in terms of like just proper sentence construction. So I'm thinking that the people who subtitled the copy I had anyhow had trouble with it <laughs> in terms of putting across the conversational Portuguese that the film is spoken in. It doesn't help either that Paulo, our main character, is not a very likable character. It's not like you want to be with him, hang out with this guy, experience what he's experiencing, because he's, to put it mildly, he's a hothead. He's kind of an a-hole. And so it's just like, all right, well, I'm going to try to sympathize with you because we are in your head and undergoing all this stuff, but you're not making it easy at all. And I'm glad that I wasn't the only person that was just like, yeah, no, Paolo, I, I would try to avoid you if I saw you at a dinner party. I believe that the character of Paolo is a stand-in for Rosha himself. However, if you, if you step back from it, it is kind of like a coming-of-age movie involving someone who's like in his mid-30s or something. You know, it's an odd coming-of-age because he gets d disillusioned by this, then he gets disillusioned by that, and then... You know, he goes to a hedonistic phase and then he emerges, whatever. And that's what I get confused by. And then, then he dies. <laughs> you know, it, it's odd because I think the film is so rich with like its characterization of, of politics. And I believe the point is, is that it does drive him mad to a certain extent. And that is when it gets to that point where. It just seems like uh, he's gone mad. That's what I was getting mad with the film, too. But, you know, because it was like, I get it. it. It is maddening, this whole experience you're going through and trying to figure out which side is up here. I'm really glad that you said coming-of-age story because, yeah, when we think of coming-of-age stories, it's always like the teenager or the first year of college or the graduation. And we don't tend to have these you know, some would call it a midlife crisis, but we don't have this kind of coming of age later on in life where you get to sit back and, or not sit back. He's more uh, of an active participant, but you get to, to reevaluate and say, wow, this thing that I thought was really super important in my life, or I really believed in this person. And that's pretty much what we're dealing with so much here. I really believed in this person and their ideals and what they stood for. And now I see that they're kind of a monster. And so I'm going to reject that and try to glom onto another idea. And wow, this is really good. And this thing, yeah, this is the way that we got to go. Oh, wait, yeah, maybe this wasn't that good either. Because Paolo is torn between two politicians in this. There's Diaz, who I love the way that Diaz is portrayed, where he's got a cross in one hand and this big 
black flag in the other hand, and he just is this center of power. And when we see him, he's usually indoors, and there's a scene of him dancing. And I think that the woman that he's dancing with might have been a former flame of Paolo. That's what I'm reading in some uh, readings of the of the movie. And then we've got Vieta, who is this man in the white suit. You know, we've got the one guy with the black flag. We've got the other guy in the white suit. And he is usually shown to be outdoors. Not too many scenes of him indoors. He's usually on this veranda. He is not a man of action. And that is what Paolo is looking for. I'm sure we've all gone through this in our lives where politicians, friends, family members, whoever it is, where you're just like, oh, wow, yeah, they're fantastic. And then you get get to see, like, here's a picture of this guy with Jeffrey Epstein. Maybe he's not that great of a person. Maybe we should persecute the shit out of him. So, yeah, go right ahead. Neither one of these political figures that you're you're talking about, Diaz or Vieira, is, are really committed, it doesn't seem like. And, and later on in the film, when, when uh, Paulo's uh, documentary on Diaz airs, we see his life story, and it always seems like he's an opportunist. Throughout the telling of his personal story, his political career, he's simply an opportunist. And Vieira doesn't really ever seem, even from the very beginning, that he's really all that deeply committed to any kind of you know progressive reform, which is what Paulo is expecting from him. At one point, he says, uh, Paulo says something to the effect of, uh, a leader has to be moral. And Vera responds by saying, it's impossible because he's dealing what he has to deal with. Influence from his donors and various different business interests get involved. And uh, he finds it as an impossible situation. I mean, it was like, I wasn't anticipating this stuff, but I do have to kowtow to these special interests. This movie, you know, plays a lot with form, which is to be expected. That's what we have definitely seen so far. And because it is the Brazilian version of New Wave, you know, and that's what we've seen in every New Wave film around the globe is this way that we play with form. And this one is no different. And I love that we've got these on-screen titles that come up and the, the scene that you're talking about, Ken, is probably one of my favorite scenes in the entire movie when it is Paolo making this documentary about Diaz and we just, bam, stick it right in the middle of the movie and have the title card come up and have it play out. And again, man, it's just – I talked last week about Rosha and his use of sound effects, his use of music. We were talking about all the folk songs and Antonio das Mortes and, and Black God, White Devil. And this movie is no different. When we get to this documentary in the middle here with this uh, movie kind of uh, unmasking Diaz – that news on the march type music that is playing through it. It is fantastic. And yeah, that just opens up a whole other conversation about the way that he plays with music and sound effects through this. I mean, there's one section towards the end where you've just got gunshots going off all the time and it, it kind of drives, it's kind of like that chanting from Antonio das Mortes. It drives me a little crazy with all of these gunshots, but he's getting his point across. That's for sure. Very heavy handed, but he's getting his point across. This is dynamic, urgent filmmaking. It's passionate. It's committed. And that's what I've gotten from, I hadn't seen any of the uh, Rocha films prior to doing these podcasts. I got to tell you, I truly recommend him as a great filmmaker because of that, because of the urgency that, that you sense the energy and enthusiasm for, for making these films is something that's really very impressive and pretty rare, I'd say. You know, the problems I have with this particular film are based upon how things are communicated. And it's like I wanted to press pause and contemplate for a second <laughs> a, a bit of dialogue and then, but it would take me forever to do that. You want to watch a movie as a movie. However, I, I'm willing to go out on a limb and say this would probably replay really well on a second, third, fourth viewing. It does make it a little bit more palatable, I have to say. It makes it makes more sense. I'm feeling more sympathetic towards the movie than I did yesterday after I watched it. I'm feeling more sympathetic towards it today, and I'm thinking, you know, it may be me. <laughs> I don't think it's you. I think that Roca has 
some things he's trying to talk about in the film that don't come across as clearly to American audiences. And let's not kid ourselves, the movie is ultimately made for the people of Brazil. But it is made for the people outside of Brazil to understand what's going on in Brazil. Because obviously, El Dorado is meant to be Brazil. This is uh, it's pretty thinly veiled, if you know, of anything. El Dorado equals Brazil in this equation. So, like, like you said, like I've come around to this movie watching it a second time because the first time I watched it, I was just not confused. I was just like, okay. I, I think that the forces, though, that that are presented in the film, the forces of politics in general, are universal. The company Explant. I don't know exactly what they do, but. Uh, it's a big foreign company that uh, is making inroads into El Dorado and obviously want to have some kind of influence there. And they're pitted against uh, a local businessman who uh, thinks he runs things, Fuentes. You have your business interests. Then you have the uh, liberal idealism represented by Paulo and, and uh, artists and poets and the like. Then you have the actual peasants who are actually starving and wanting better conditions. All these people seem to want to do things different ways. You have the corrupted politicians. Come on, where have we seen this before? This is universal stuff. The fact that it's presented straightforward in a way, I mean, those elements are there. Uh, I'm not sure if that's ever been presented in quite that way. So it's like, it's all laid out. It's like a, like a map of the insanity of politics. I agree with you, Chris, that El Dorado is definitely a stand in for Brazil. I find it interesting that he's using El Dorado, though, this mythical city of, of gold. And it's this whole idea of like, could Brazil be that land of gold? And it's just through the follies of men that were unable to get to that point, or is just this idea of a land of gold, just a myth and unto itself. And we'll never get there no matter what, because it just doesn't exist. Well, it's like in America, Reagan referred to the shining city on the hill or whatever, or your ideal is in your head. And that's what everyone tries to aspire to tries to, to push forward to, to this vision that they have except that everybody has a different vision. You know, I mean, all these various different people have different visions. That comes across to me anyhow, that there's conflicts that are set up between idealism versus realism, practicality, the being reasonable when you get to be a governor, as Vieira does. Paulo says something like, can the governor deliver on what the candidate promised? All these issues are like, you know, the very definition of politics, it resides in this film. And uh, it's something I, that uh, is kind of surprising to see. You can tell that Rocha was, what, 27, 26 when he made this film, maybe 28. I mean, this is a younger man's film. This is somebody who probably is like Paolo, someone who is this idealist who's just like, why can't it be this way? Why can't we do these things? Why can't we blah, 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 blah. When you're younger and you haven't seen the way that the world works a lot of times. It's just like, okay, yeah. I mean, it would be great if we could get to this land of El Dorado. It'd be fantastic if we could do that. But yeah, we have so many assholes that it's just not probably practically going to ever happen. That's the reason why I find Paulo not distasteful, but just a lot to, to swallow just because he is so into this idea and just like, well, why can't it be this? And it's got to be this way. And why can't you do this? Da, 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 da. And yeah, he wants to know why, why is the person out campaigning? Why is that not the person that we elect? And it's like, yeah, sorry. Once you get into that position, you then have to play the game. And it would be great if you could change the rules, but sometimes you can't change the rules. You we see some politicians that are able to change the rules. That's fantastic. But then you've got others where there are battles that they will just never win. And Vieta is somebody who just doesn't seem to have a spine. And then that makes Paulo even more disillusioned when he sees Vieta is not able to pick up arms and go fight. And it's like, well, is that really the way that we want to handle this? So you're saying theoretically here, just in a theoretical situation, definitely not the one that we're all experiencing now, 
that that wall is not getting built? What I'm saying is it would be nice if we could take the funding that was going to buy the cops tanks and assault rifles and bazookas and all this kind of stuff and maybe put it into something a little more practical and maybe something a little less violent. And maybe like if we move some of our money into like funding schools and arts and those kind of things rather than policing us. Yeah, but how are we going to nuke and blow people that don't look like us? I don't understand. Isn't that like the American way? Or I was led to believe that that in a lot of American political films, you don't see them tackling this topic in this way. And it's kind of surprising. It's like so on point for a film from 67 talking about things. I'm like, like we've said, this is essentially this is something that will never be able to be removed from politics. And that's why. Everyone says, you know, don't trust politicians. You know, you can't trust a word that comes out of their mouth because the moment they're done campaigning, when they've got all they want is your vote. Once they've got your vote, they don't have to do anything else. They've already got your vote. And and then they'll get your vote again because they'll make more promises and lie to you when it comes close to the midterm or the primary. So there you go. I mean, I rarely see American filmmaking tackling political issues in a substantive way the way this film tackles political issues. That's what I meant when I said it's a map of politics, that, that all the elements are represented that causes the kind of uh, the, the political problems that never seem to go away. I think the, the very most fundamental problem with politics is that people who aspire to positions of authority are the last people who should have authority. <laughs> because if they aspire to authority, then, then they must think that they can solve problems. That they're the ones. I'm the one who can solve this problem. I'm the one who can solve that problem. And what happens, like a hundred times out of a hundred, is that it's ego. It, it, it's hubris. It's it's they can't solve these problems because of bureaucracies and whatnot. Every every single bureaucratic office in any administration runs on its own, basically. And I think that the problem with people who aspire to authority and a power, they have to throw in their two cents worth and uh, screw things up. Most th- most things can run pretty well if they're allowed to do so. You know, Adam Curtis talks about this a lot in Power of Nightmares and stuff, and I tend to believe it. But like that, that idea of wanting to be aspiring to being in a position of authority, that affects everyday walk of life thing. I mean, it's, a lot of the police force are people who want to who like, hey, get a job, get to knock people in the head. That's what I want to do with my life. You know, a lot of other positions, even like a manager at a store. It's the old story. Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. I mean, Ken, let's not kid ourselves. Um, you're not allowed to you're not allowed to work from home because if you work from home, who's going to tell you what to do in person? And again, like it's just really shocking to me how well thought out this film's commentary on politics is like compared to like looking at films that have come out in the last five to 10 years. God knows the films that are going to be coming out in the next five to 10 years. What sort of, what sort of mad Maxian dystopian nightmare politics films are we're going to be getting. But it's just, I'm, I'm appreciative of how Roca approaches it because it feels so on the nose in a not, like overbearing way, which I appreciate as as someone who is, you know, I'm interested in politics about as much as anyone who cares anymore is. But, uh, you know, it's just it's nice to see someone understanding that kind of interplay and not just kind of ignoring it. I feel so much for Paolo at the very end when he is out there in the desert with his gun screaming into the void just the way that he gets framed so small in that lower right-hand corner where it's just like the world is against him and just the sky is so oppressive for this guy. It's just like he is so nothing in this universe and it's like he finally realizes it right there at the very end. I understand what you're saying, Mike. I think that for me, the closest character you have to someone who's principled in the movie is Sarah, who talks about her story of engagement with politics and how she wasn't interested at first, but then due to conditions, living conditions and whatnot, she started joining in with the protest. She was raped. 
She was thrown in a filthy prison with rats. And she shows the scars of, of, of her personal experience. And she's true to her ideals. She, I think she sees the long game. When you see the long game, you take into consideration things like this may not be the ideal candidate, but this is a stepping stone. It's better than what's been there. She's the heart of the movie without being necessarily the center you know, of attention. Yeah, her performance is fantastic. I'm guessing that this is Roche's sister, having pretty much the same name. Yes, yeah. Yeah, and she was born just a few years before him. It looks like, I think, 1930, and he's 1939. It is interesting that we are talking about the way that Rosha, Glauber Rosha, this is, not the, the sister, that he is fighting and you know, trying to get all those words out, trying to get all of these films out, these ideas out, because he was so so short lived. You know that he only lived till he was forty one years old. It's almost like he knew that he was going to have a short life and was just like desperately trying to get these ideas out. I see certain other influences because you know this uh, was an era of you know international consciousness raising awareness of politics. Of course, he was interacting and watching films from all around the world as well. And I see similarities. I wouldn't say necessarily influences, but similarities with some uh, Pasolini, for example. Mike, you and I discussed Porcel. And I think that he was arriving at a similar place where Pasolini was, which was almost he, he'd reach stasis. Whereas, like, if you think things through to a logical end, you end up paralyzed. And I think Pasolini expressed that in some ways in some of his films. And I think I'm getting a little bit of that from this film here, too. It also reminds me of the whole coming-of-age thing. It was like Bertolucci's early films. I see some of that in there as well. And there's a whole segment on a hotel balcony, which has, to me, the, the line that made me laugh in the movie. And it's a very serious film, but uh, uh, these representatives of... Vera come with Sarah to try to to get Paulo to rejoin Vera. One of the guys who's talking to him says something to the effect of, uh, you're kind of an anarchist. And <laughs> what I thought was funny about it was, like, they were trying to figure him out, and the best they could come up with was he doesn't fit into any kind of obvious political ideology or anything that, that we can we can ascribe to him. So we'll call him an anarchist because they just couldn't figure him out. And by that point in the movie, I was having a difficult time trying to figure out exactly what he wanted as well. That's where the uh, coming of age stuff comes into play. Because he does seem to be going through changing and evolving as we watch. And uh, but, but the scene on the balcony also reminds me of what Pauline Kael used to call Antoni Ennui. That sick soul of Europe type feeling that was prevalent in some of the movies of the early 60s in Europe, like Antonioni films, which is um, at one point, Paulo says something that he wants to write about the misery of our souls. So that that was a pretty prevalent idea. The idea that that uh, uh, in European films that there was like in the Cleese and La Notte and some of Antonioni's films in particular. It's this idea that, that the bourgeois was just like disgusted with itself or didn't know how to live in the modern world. And, was, and also, whenever you're just talking about a film from this era, there's always the envelope you have to put it in, and that's the Cold War. And that's the threat of nuclear annihilation and all that stuff, which isn't directly addressed, but it's kind of like uh, throughout that entire period, it's a subtext. Chew on that. <laughs> I think it's very apt that you bring up Bertolucci and Pasolini because both of them, these directors who are also writers, I mean, especially Pasolini just had his fingers in so many different pies. And we know that Rocha was a writer as well as a director and just wanted to create. And you're right, as far as Paolo being our main character and being the stand-in for Rocha, him being a poet as well as this fighter slash anarchist kind of a character. He does just really seem to be a mouthpiece for Rosha. 
he's working through his own problems. I think when when he set out to to make this film, he's addressing the personal issues he has with uh, the whole idea of trying to be an artist who is for progressive reform. He couldn't have found it very easy to do that because he had commercial concerns. You know the whole idea of. And the ironic thing is, last film he made, The Age of the Earth, uh, he tried to get it financed in, uh, wanted to do it initially in Los Angeles, and couldn't get any backing for that. Wanted to do it in Paris, he wanted to do it in Rome, and uh, various different, Mexico and Venezuela, and could not get any financing for this production. Eventually, he got it financed by a state-run film company in Brazil, and he was absolutely vilified for it because it was a state-run company that was run by the state, which was a military uh, military dictatorship. That's like exactly something that could have been in this film. That fact could have been in this film, part and parcel of the whole thing. He was like vilified for that, and it was the f- film was boycotted, and it's recently enjoyed somewhat of a uh renaissance in a way and people have been praising it but at the time it was like globber you know you're such a a pure progressive reformer and all, and you're making movies financed by the military dictatorship that you loathe so what's up with that come on dude well hey you know what if they're gonna give him money i mean if the movie doesn't get made otherwise i don't know means means to an end and all that nonsense but that is one of the, the issues, you know, this whole idea of selling out and everything, the, the purity, you know, the, the whole idea of purity uh, when it comes to these political situations. As something else from an Adam Curtis film is that there's a story about these Muslim terrorists that were in, in a small group together. And there's like seven or eight of them, or so the story goes. And one by one, they started killing each other because individually they thought that that person's weak. That person is not pure enough. That person is uh, an opportunist, and so on and so forth, until they all ended up dead. And that's that's what is at the heart of the whole idea of of a pure politics. You know, having a being an, an ideologue who follows a line of thinking and cannot deviate from it. You know, they're like unicorns. It's like you get into office and then you prosecute the people that ran against you. Whoa, 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 whoa. Hey, hey, hey. Do you want to lose listeners? No, no, no. You know what, dude? Like like you've been saying, like you and Ken have both been saying, this idea that the film posits about the duality of politics and the... Because it is kind of two-faced. It's not kind of two-faced. It's totally two-faced. But you expect it now. We expect that that's the way it's going to be. That's the joke. I mean, that's... The joke that I always tell is, you know, oh, you know, there's always this narrative that, you know, a vote for the third party is the vote of the is the waste of the vote. But, well, of course, the two party system would love for you to think that it's a two party system. You have to vote for one of us. Right. This is a two party system. Well, I believe I'll vote for a third party candidate. Go ahead. Throw your vote away. (laughs) It's that same idea here where it's like, of course they would love for you to think that they're not doing what they say they're not going to do. And then they get into office and of course they don't do it. But they don't want you to even have an inkling on your mind of that being the case. And the film does such a good job of really showing you how Paolo just goes from I'm all here for this. I'm here to do everything I can. And then by the end of the movie, he's just like, man, what does it even matter? It just doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. I tell you, it just doesn't matter. It doesn't even matter. And like that feeling of hopelessness, I know I can't be the only one feeling that way in 2020 because I know I'm not. Watching this film, Mike felt a little bit like when we did Mike White March. <laughs> on the culture cast earlier this year. It had that same like, oh man, this is way too close to home. <laughs> like, this is this is hitting me in the forehead with some stuff where it's like, I could watch the news and see some of this and know exactly the same feeling. But that's not a bad thing. While some people don't watch the news, they watch entertainment. This is giving them some of that with the entertainment and the message. And I I mean look, 
Roka, like he cl- he clearly of the last films that we've already watched of his, like he clearly gets how to that that kind of balancing act of the two, and I appreciate that in his films. No, I said I said at the start that I I couldn't say that I liked the movie. However, I will full throatedly recommend it. It is particularly relevant to this day and age, and in fact, the way I look at it, I see it as being much more direct in addressing the the whole political spectrum and then anything I can anything else I can think of really I love how confrontational this movie is you know not just with the subject matter but just you know I talked last week about characters addressing the camera and we have that throughout this movie there are so many times where characters will turn right to us and start talking to us and I'm not sure if they're supposed to be talking to other characters or not but they are definitely talking to us and there are I think probably I'd say almost every main character and even some characters that aren't main characters will turn and look at us and speak to us. And in some films that wouldn't work, but here it works. It doesn't feel unorganic in a way in in the way it would feel in other movies if that makes sense. Like I kind of expected it in this movie. It didn't feel out of place. It's almost like that jarring moment in the third act of Goodfellas when Henry starts talking to oh, us. Yes. You know, and it's like it's like if that were to happen a few times throughout Goodfellas, where suddenly, you know, Lorraine Bracco's character turns and talks to us, or Joe Pesci's character turns and talks to us. I mean, it's just those moments where and we get that kind of in casino with the voiceover, but we don't get that direct addressment. But with this with with Entranced Earth, it just makes a lot of sense when they just will turn to us and start speaking their mind for me this is really in kind of the top couple films i've seen on the topic of politics i think it does a really good job in in the ways other films i've seen on politics don't yeah when i think of political films i tend to think more of the satire or where the satire is so biting that it's just like okay yeah this feels right you know i'm thinking of things like wag the dog or Bob Roberts, those kind of things where it's just like, all right, yeah, they're using humor in a way to get to us with these things, um, as opposed to like network or all the president's men. Well, all the president's men is, you know, they, they kind of dress it up in a, in a thriller, guys, but it is a political film. But yeah, this is one of those movies where I, I can't think of anything in America like mainstream American filmmaking that is anywhere close to this. Even when it comes to like some of the, the new American directors, I'm guessing maybe like strawberry statement or RPM, something along those lines during that, that period of filmmaking. But I can't think of anything that compares. I liked uh, Michael Ritchie's film, the candidate. It shows a character who is idealistic at the very beginning. And then he's persuaded to like uh, compromise his ideals just to win the election. Then at the very end, after he's won the election, he turns to his campaign manager and says, now what? I think that this movie starts where that film leaves off because you have these characters, Vera I'm thinking of in particular, who is in that now what type of uh, area there. And he's dealing with the various different forces that we've been talking about. And he doesn't quite know what to do. He doesn't quite know who's in charge, even. You know, we have this off-screen character. We don't see the president of El Dorado, Fernandez, who's referred to. But we don't know how much he's in charge uh, because of Explant and all these other factors that he has to deal with. On this whole idea of, I mean, of course... That we know in America how much corporate interests have have influence on our politics or just run the politics. But then when I think of you know corporate interests and especially you know the 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 way that South America was colonized and the way that you've got things like you know Dole and the United Fruit Company and all of these different companies that are just like, oh, yeah, we're going to take a piece of this pie and a piece of that pie and a piece of that pie. I mean, people are so upset 
what was that just was that earlier this year or late last year with the idea of like Venezuela and what was going on down there and it was just like oh shit they've got all kinds of oil we should go down there and help those people and <laughs> show them what freedom is all about you know oil has been discovered america has entered the chat i mean it's the truth like again it's one of these running jokes but oh uh it would be an awful shame if you didn't know about the american way as if Brazil didn't have their own problems to deal with. And all of a sudden, the national anthem plays, America runs out with the money in the bank briefcase, and starts smashing people over the head. Yeah, we get it, America. We're there. We we understand the uh, capitalistic nature of our country when it comes to natural resources. Then you see one meet with Diaz, and one meet with Vieira, and... <laughs> Vienna, just who who's going to take the money first? Who can we prop up and make sure that they win the election? Or who even needs an election? It's kind of chilling because uh, there are most this film was contemporaneous, of course. Uh, whereas the other two films we talked about, like I mentioned in the previous week's uh, podcast, that I, I really couldn't place a date on any of those on either of those movies. They seem to take place outside of time, like in this realm of myth or legend. And like I also mentioned earlier about this film is that there's contrasts that are shown to us. Idealism versus realism, poetry versus politics, urban and rural is also brought into play here. And we see a couple scenes that take place where Vieira is out among the people. And he just seems to be enjoying the adulation he's getting from uh, the locals, because they all think that this is the man. He's going to do stuff for us. And uh, he's saying more or less like, yeah, sure, whatever. Yeah, uh, water over here. We'll, we'll build bridges. We'll do this and the other, whatever. And he just seems to be caught up in the adulation and not really even thinking about the practicality of doing these things and how to get these things done. And there's a couple scenes that are pretty stark where, where he actually has interactions with, with someone who just comes practically begging him. Uh, a character, I think his name was Felicio and he ends up dead and people are blaming, uh, Vieira for it. Cause you know, he really hasn't come through after he promised them something earlier in the film. And this guy ends up, uh, Mike, uh, Chris, do you guys remember exactly how Felicio died? I think it was off screen. It was off screen, but I do remember that there was a gun held to his head or something at one point, or maybe I'm thinking of something else. Those realities are like, they're there. And uh, Rosha shows us those realities, but they seem to be secondary to what's, to, to the main story, which is the politics. But it's important that he does show the real real uh, impact that the politics has on these people. And it seems like they're just shunted aside. The drama plays out. The people who, um, including Paula, they're involved in this other thing, which is about power. Whereas these people are a victim of power because they get ignored when, when, when power is what everybody is concentrating on. I touched a little earlier about the music and one of the scenes you're talking about where Vieira is going through the crowd, there's this tuba music that was playing and I was like, yes. okay, I'm not that familiar with the musicality of Brazil and Roche is being so careful about what music he is choosing for which area. It, this has to be making fun of Vieira. I had a note on that and I wrote down, if you want to mock something... Put a tuba underneath it. Okay, I'm glad I'm not the only person that thought that, because I was just like, this seems like he is really being mocked, just that boop, 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 as he's going through the crowd, and just, yeah, he seemed clueless, because part of it was because of him and his performance and all that, but part of it was he was being undermined by that music. It was kind of like the film saying, yeah, right, whatever. And it was like during the scene where he's being at where he's getting all this adulation from the crowds and everything, and, and the movie is taking that adulation away from him with the tuba. <laughs> Tuba's a very powerful instrument. So, yeah, I would agree with you guys. I would recommend that people watch this and 
even more than that, that they watch it twice just because it is a difficult watch on that first time and that it makes it a lot easier the second time when you can kind of see how the pieces are fitting together. And also having hopefully listened to this, you know that the majority of the film is a flashback. So now you know more than we knew when we were going into this. I only watched the film the one time, but I caught that it was a flashback right away. Mr. Smarty Pants over here. It's big brain time, boys, and he's here for it. Yeah, Ken Big Brain from Detroit, you're here with Mike and Chris in the morning. Tell us all about it. If it's any consolation to you guys, though, I, I have to admit that uh, I was much more confused by the rest of the okay. <laughs> Well, there you go. So I caught the flashback, but, you know. I, I would suggest everyone watch this twice, because assumption being, if you watched it again, you would probably glean more from it. It's, it I, I gleaned a, a plenty but I just got bogged down with a lot of the uh, rhetoric that was uh, flying fast and furious near near the end. Like uh, I want to say three quarters of the way through, I just like uh, you know, like I said, it, obviously he's trying to describe the madness of the circumstance or situation that he his uh, stand-in character Paula was going through, and I was equally as frustrated. At that point, because, like I said, it's tough to digest a lot of this stuff, especially when, when you're dealing with a guy who's a poet. You know, he's speaking in platitudes and aphorisms and, you know, flowery rhetoric. And so it's like you want time to digest that, to, 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 to get the meaning and the essence of what he's saying. And then, then somebody else will say something that, that will seem to be cryptic or abstract. And it's like one abstraction, a cryptic remark, a bit of poetry. It's like, whoa, slow to slow down, guys. <laughs> you know, I'm sure that that uh, you could everything that is being presented to us is understandable on one level or another. It's just that when it comes at you that that quickly from different directions, you know, just want to say to the characters on screen, chill out a little bit, guys. From what I've read. There are some people that mark this film as actually the end of Cinema Novo, which doesn't mean that you don't get to come back next week, Chris. So long, folks. Opens door to airplane and jumps out without parachute. I'm going I'm going down. Later. Antonio Desmortes, which we talked about last week, actually comes after this film. And it's a, it's Roche's first color film. And even though he's dealing with some of the same issues that he did in Black God, White Devil – some folks are just like, yeah, this was kind of the end of an era. We talked a little bit on the first episode of Cinema Nova Month about how there were the three different eras. And some people will consider that last era. They won't even consider it Cinema Novo. They consider it Tropicalismo. So I'm very curious, having seen now Black God, White Devil, Antonio Desmortes, this film, and then we will wrap up the whole month with The Lion Has Seven Heads. I'm very curious how that compares to these other films, because each one of them, I mean, frankly, each film, I've talked about some similarities, like characters talking to the camera, a few other things, the use of music, sound effects, but you could not get... Even though we had, even though Antonio Desmortes is in one film and is named after the other film and is in that film, these films are completely dissimilar. It's just amazing what he was doing with each of these movies. And so I have no idea what The Lion Has Seven Heads is going to have when we get to that film. Oh, you're right. Uh, stylistically, there are certain things that tie the, the three uh, Rocha films together, but they are all really very distinct from each other. Black God, White Devil really knocked me out because it seemed like a, a parable. Uh, Antonio Desmortes, I think Chris referred to it or used the expression uh, guerrilla filmmaking. That comes across, you know, there's elements of spaghetti western in there. There's, uh, there's a direct confrontational feeling about the thing. It just feels different than Black God, White Devil. And yet you can tell it's done by the same guy. And the same applies to this movie as well. So he's really a very exciting filmmaker. I'm glad I, I had the chance to discover him. And I'm right there with you, Ken. Right there with you. All right, we're going to take a break, and we'll be right back after these brief messages. 
I'm Dave Hunt, and I'm one of the co-hosts for Super True Stories, a podcast where two guys suffer through and report back on some of the worst documentaries you can stream for free. I'm Axel Kohag, and the other co-host. Film is a beautiful lie that teaches us about who we are on the inside. Dave and I look at the documentaries that are the ugliest of truths, teaching you about mixed martial arts and fishing, poorly faked ghost stories, and everything you wanted to know about poor production values and stock footage. Check us out on iTunes, Google Play, or at supertruestories.com. In 1985, a curious phenomenon occurred. The Twilight Zone returned to television, featuring all new tales of mystery and imagination from the minds of Ray Bradbury, Harlan Ellison, George R.R. Martin, and Stephen King. Dreams for Sale, the Twilight Zone 85 podcast looks back at that land of shadow and substance and re-examines the groundbreaking successor to Rod Serling's legacy. Featuring new interviews with the show's creators and cast, Dreams for Sale can be found on iTunes and at TwilightZone85.com. Dreams for sale. We'll be waiting for you in the Twilight Zone. Hi, this is Andrew from We Hate Movies, and you're listening to the Projection Booths. If you feel like laughing after listening to some serious film discussion, head on over to our show, whmpodcast.com. Every Tuesday, a new episode drops, us ragging on bad movies, whereas the good folks here at the Projection Booth are talking about good, hearty, cinema-related stuff. Go here for the cinema. Come to us for the laughs afterwards. We hate movies every Tuesday. All right, we're back and we're talking about Cinema Novo. And let's take a little bit to uh, talk about Eric Roche's documentary, which, like I said, ironically enough, is called Cinema Novo. I found this documentary the first time I watched it frustrating because there's no voiceover and i was just like expecting the typical talking head documentary and so when i didn't get that i was you know first i was confused and then i was angry and then i finally accepted it there was no real cinema novo style there was nothing that tied these films together necessarily but rosha uh stated that he, he thought that it was a revolution of filmmaking and there were other people... Well, the director of Vita Secas, Dos Santos. Yes. Him, or a third guy, said something to the effect that, you know, because of the resources that were available to these people, they just had to make do and create their own personal style. Didn't necessarily mean that the films were at any kind of particular uh, thematic unity. So when you're not getting that through line with a narrative uh, on, you know, the documentary that it is kind of like, well, this is this and that's that, and so what's going on here? It's nice to contextualize stuff, and there's plenty to contextualize. There's plenty of context here, and that would be helpful. There is a lot of what I would consider to be, and I don't know where y'all fall on this spectrum, a lot of the early Cinema Novo almost is very guerrilla filmmaking. It was just kind of like, well, let's just go, we've got a camera, we've got the ability to do it, so let's just go do it. And see what happens. And that, in my mind, is exciting filmmaking. Because... That's a style, and that's exciting. But it went through three different periods, from what I understand. Uh, No, it was 60 to 64, 64 to 68, and 68 to 72 is the official timeline of uh, Cinema Novo. In each one of those periods, uh, there was a general change in attitude, themes, and... uh, just resources, and just uh, a reflection of uh, society during those periods. The fact that people were had different approaches during these periods just made it all like, you know, it's a grab bag. Well, and the other thing I love about Cinema Novo so far is that not only was it popular in the country that it's made in, but, I mean, like we talked about on Vita Secas, Mike, Khan is, was very like open to these movies. And I'm 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 thankful that that was the case because that allowed this movement to not just die on the vine. It allowed it to get more notoriety in an international scale versus just a Brazilian scale. Yeah, I was really glad to hear the way that the French and other countries embraced this. You know, you talked about Khan and to know that, you know, Rocha was in 
with the the French New Wave in a few weeks. We'll talk about The Lion Has Seven Heads, which had Marco Ferrari was involved in that from uh, from Italy, who also worked with Pasolini and also worked with Godard. So we have just all this cross-pollination which you wouldn't think in the late 60s. I mean, we're, we're always talking about, oh, isn't it amazing that we can have this call between, you know, me here in Detroit and you there in Omaha and, or somebody in Australia. And it's just like, okay, yeah, that, that's the world we're living in now. Whereas that it's like getting those messages across the, the ocean was quite an ordeal, I would think. Yeah. I think the common thing at that point in time was changing the language of cinema. And that is exactly what happened, and everyone who was interested in doing that could find their own expression, and they knew that, hey, I can do whatever I want to if I can pull off something with some kind of narrative, even if I don't have a narrative. I can pull, I mean, I don't know if either of you guys saw uh, O Patio, it was a 1959 short by Rocha. It's just an avant-garde thing that was reminded me more of Maya Darren and a little bit of Eisenstein more than anything else. And it was a black and white floor, like a checkerboard floor, with a couple of people writhing on it. <laughs> and it was, I mean, you could see that that he's a very passionate guy, and everything he did, all the films, the two films that I've seen so far, shot through with passion. And if you see any interviews with him where he's talking directly, oh my god. He talked about charisma. He's uh, a very passionate guy. So so you can see that aspect as early on as that. It's like, I need to make films. You know, that comes through right away. Well, they see it as their... I mean, in my mind, it was clear that he saw it as his calling. And the person I want making films like this is the person who finds film to be their calling. Because this is film with a purpose. This is not film for just entertainment's sake. Almost oh, definitely, yeah. Yeah, and like I said, I complained at first about the lack of a voiceover in this documentary, but then I realized, oh, these are the actual filmmakers themselves that are telling me this story, and we have all this archive footage of these people at the time, so that made me really appreciate it. You know, I was a little lost as far as some of the clips, though it's funny now watching these movies after I've seen the documentary and going, oh... Well, okay, yeah, I know that shot now. I've seen that. That's the end of Black God, White Devil. All right. You know, oh, hey, here's uh, this middle part from uh, Antonio Desmortes. I recognize that. So it's kind of a greatest hits of the Cinema Novo and actually hearing from the filmmakers that were a part of it. And you're right, Ken, as far as the charisma of Glaborosha, I mean, you know, I talked about how much I love hearing Scorsese speak. It's very similar with Rocha because he is just so passionate. He certainly has left a legacy in Brazil, which to someone coming in from the cold who see these movies, they would think that, oh, he's like a cult director or whatever. Last year, they named an airport after him in his hometown of Vitoria de Conquistas. I find this pretty ironic. Bolsonaro was there at the uh, at the ceremony uh, when they opened the airport, which is, of course, you know, like the last person that <laughs> Rocha would have wanted to be there. <laughs> like another another dictator. God damn it. <laughs> well, again, so few of us in the States really know anything about South American history. It's not. Oh, boy. South America just. Oh. Especially Brazil, recently has so many problems. Well, and so many of the problems that South America has had have been caused directly by the United States. How dare you say such a thing? How dare you? Very un-American of me to talk about the uh, the CIA coups that we helped out. Yeah, That's why you get the desolate areas that, that these films take place in. It shows you just how the poverty level. And the lack of resources, you know, I mean, you have some, like, nice resorts and beaches, a lot, uh, Rio de Janeiro and whatnot, the great big Jesus statue and everything. But for the most part, life is tough. <laughs> it's a third world country. It's, it's unfortunate, but it is for all of the pomp and circumstance of Carnival and everything else. Like, it is a third world country. All right, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. 
That's right. We'll be back with a look at Joaquin Pedro de Andrade's. Hopefully by next week, I'll be able to pronounce that. Macunema. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-host, Ken and Chris. So, Chris, what is keeping you busy during pandemic time? You wearing that mask or are you trying not to let uh, the man hold you down? Oh, no, I'm ugly. So I always wear a mask. Oh, no, I'm wearing a mask because you know what? I understand that in society, polite society, at least, uh, we all ascribe to a social contract. And that social contract is to give a shit about one another. I give a shit about my neighbors, as we all should, even if my neighbors across the street are a bunch of racists. So, yes, I wear my mask. No, I don't go out and do things. And yes, I order my groceries from Instacart. None of those things are anything that supports either of our podcasts. But hey, if you're looking to get groceries and you don't want to leave your house, Instacart's a pretty cool app. Uh, as for myself and what's keeping me busy still doing podcasting, Casualty Chris on Twitter is where you can find me. Scary Stories We Tell, Culture Cast, Dreams for Sale, New Twilight Zone is back because uh, apparently somebody wanted it, not us. Keeping to myself, which has become a lot easier in the recent months. To show the contrast between Chris's show and this show, Chris, what are you working on over at the Culture Cast this month? Right now, we're talking about the films of one Mr. Steven Seagal. The, the way I've always pitched my podcast is imagine the projection booth, but dumb. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, we cover we the, the thing I like about coming on here and I've said it again. I've said it before. I'll say it again. And I just keep reiterating it is Mike pushes my cinematic boundaries. And I was the kind of person who, growing up in high school, I always said, oh, I'm the movie guy. And I had friends who they knew I was the movie guy. I was in the movie club, yada, 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 whatever. And then I started being on this podcast with Mike, and Mike and I have become very good friends. And I realized how limited my knowledge of cinema truly is. My podcast is more a reflection of me towing the line of popular film and stuff like this, where it's more... Not obscure, because I wouldn't call this obscure. It might be obscure for American audiences, but more kind of elevated cinema. And yes, to show the contrast, Steven Seagal films. Thank you, Mike. Personally, I would love to do uh, a stupid film every now and then. <laughs> I just come on my podcast. I do them all the time. <laughs> Ken, I will keep that in mind for 2021. And yeah, put you down right. for a stupid film. Pick him, pick him for something. Pick him for for Tom Arnold's The Stupids. Is that what the movie's called? I think it is. I, I think I I think there's a lot to be said. Well, I really appreciate how Tom Arnold's uh, role in this movie shows the plight of the working man. <laughs> I am excited to come on and talk about Fire Down Below. It's one that I've never seen before. So, Ken, for folks that didn't tune in last week, what are you working on? Well, we've been putting up uh, me and my band. I've been putting up uh, music on uh, Bandcamp on a monthly basis, clearing out the archives and just uh, this coming, God, I guess I'm due to do one like in nine days. I haven't decided what to do, but it's stuff that we've had uh, cluttering our, uh, you know, various different hard drives for ages now. So we decided, eh, what the heck, we can't practice. So we've been recording music using uh, the BandLab app, and we've been uh, posting stuff on Bandcamp. And where's the advertising dollars from these people, BandLab? And I know, Bandcamp. right? I should be paying you. Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world. Você não sabe se vai ou vem Pouco importa se o dinheiro é seu 
Bem, bem, seu cabelo é legal Moda na gringa é feliz natal Se equivocou, mas fica tudo bem Agora diz que está na onda sem Ei, baby, só sem ser Passe amanhã em pé que é seu A maquiagem vai desmanchar Para o seu medo aparecer Zero a zero, agora eu vou Você deu mole, então eu marco o gol Zero a zero, você venceu Passe amanhã e pegue o que é seu Você não sabe se vai ou vem Pouco importa se o dinheiro é seu Ei, baby, seu cabelo é legal Moda na gringa é feliz natal Se equivocou, mas ficou tudo bem Agora diz que está na onda zen Ei, baby, você venceu Passe amanhã e pegue o que é seu A maquiagem vai desmanchar Para o seu medo aparecer Zero a zero, agora eu vou Você deu mole, então eu marco vou Zero a zero, você venceu Passe amanhã e pegue o que é seu If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.